Welcome to Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we are analyzing aliens in short, controlled bursts. I'm John Ingle. And I'm Pete the Retailer. And today, we're looking at Minute 53 of Aliens. 53 starts with Hudson ordering everyone to stop their grinning and drop their linen. And it ends with some video images of some sort of structure. We can't really tell what it is. No, it's kind of hard to see there in that video. Um, yeah, that's uh, Pete the Retailer back again. Thanks for coming back, Pete. Sure. Thanks for having me on all week. It's been a lot of fun, and it still is. Yeah. Uh, and today, we brought with us uh, another guest, a new guest. Uh, it's my friend Kevin Marr. Hi, everybody. Hey, Kevin. <laughs> thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, I've, thanks for coming I, on. I, I had not watched Aliens in like 20 years, and oh my God, it's so good. You did a little refresher screening? I've been meaning to do a refresher screening every couple of years because it's like it's the anniversary or, um, you know, Bill Paxton passed away. There, there are all these reasons of like, man, I got to go back and rewatch Aliens. And um, I got to tell you, it's so many movies. If you haven't seen them in a long time, they are not as good as you remember. This is so I mean, obviously, you've dedicated a podcast to it. I don't have to tell right. you it's a really good film. Yeah, I, this is definitely one of those kind of movies where it's an action movie. It, it has particular elements of it that are of its time. Uh, we'll talk about a little bit of that in this minute, I guess. But for some reason, for me, it never seems dated, and it seems to kind of get a little better every time I watch it, weirdly. Mm. Or, or at least there's something different about it every time I watch it that keeps it fresh for me. So, yeah, so, I mean... What did you pick up on the most recent viewing, either either regarding well, <laughs> or, or something else entirely? What, what jumped out at you? That's a good question, because now my mind, because I'm watching it in this minute-by-minute minute, uh, kind of way, I'm, my head is swimming with those things. So it's really hard to uh, focus down. But, you know, last, uh, last, it was two years ago or so. I did a rewatch of it, and the because this is a minute we already talked about. I had, you know, I love Ripley. She's one of my favorite characters, if not my favorite movie character of all time. But I'd never noticed until a couple of years ago when I watched it again that there's this distinct moment where I think her character really takes off, which is the moment that she grabs the flashlight and dives into the duct to go after Newt. And there's something about that moment that her hand reaches out, the, the flashlight's in the foreground of the shot, and her mm-hmm. hand reaches out in, on the soundtrack. The sound of her like grasping it is really high in the mix. And there's something, it punctuates this moment where she finally comes to and becomes Ripley again after being kind of, a, kind of sleepwalking through the, the early parts of the movie due to trauma and being out of her time and so on. Sure. That really struck me, and it actually elevated the movie a great deal to me. Like I'd never thought about how her character really changes through this movie as much and it's partially because this was the first one i saw so to me this was always ripley i never thought about it i I never saw her through the lens of who she was an alien then who she became an aliens so that was one thing that was one time where the movie just really took off for me yeah that's totally there absolutely and and i like the idea that she's sleepwalking because because there is so much dream uh, language and imagery and nightmarishness in it. So I think sleepwalking is a really good way to put it, that she kind of snaps out of it and comes to. That's, yeah. that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, and it's, a, uh, I mean, from 
I don't know if it's like a, a like a me bringing again. I don't, I don't want to bring Star Wars into anything, but I think of the, uh, <laughs> the kind of, uh, you know, carbon sickness essentially. Like maybe you know, like the fact that she actually was in just you know hypersleep for so long and then kind of coming out of it, not only in her, you know, I I, I don't I don't think it's like you know within the context of the movie. I don't think because there's a you know months that span probably between her being kind of released and and uh, the her meeting meeting the aliens but um at least from from a watching it from a from a viewer's point of view it seems like oh yeah she was still kind of in hypersleep for 57 years so she's still a little slow from that and she was literally has just waken up yeah and you know unlike han solo awakening from carbon sleep ripley becomes a better character <laughs> upon waking up arguably <laughs> A much, much worse version of herself. Yeah. <laughs> but, but Han Solo Han Solo is sleepwalking through all of Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's the carbon. I mean, that, why, what else can explain him stepping on twigs in the woods? <laughs> I mean, the guy's just not paying attention. No, he's yeah. not the same since that happened. Uh, well, speaking of, uh, of cool characters, interesting characters... Um, I love. I know it's you know it's it's not his intro in the in the film in the movie, but uh, it just you know in the minute by minute format, just watching it, you know, just these minutes for this week, I love that Hudson's intro is him just being like, "Yo," <laughs> kind of announcing <laughs> yeah. himself to the to the audience basically, and then follows up with the you know, that kind of awesome. That's the the essence of Hudson is these kind of like you know. Right, uh, sarcastic kind of you know folk folksy. Uh, uh, I don't even know what to call it. It's not like a, it's not like a it's like a catchphrase even or anything. It's just a you know it's one of these quotable little Hudson bits. Yeah, I my question is with this. You know, he's got so many of these, and they and they don't come naturally. Like sometimes they come naturally, uh, but sometimes they just come out of the blue, and it makes you think he's got kind of a mental rolodex. Always kind of turning, like okay, which one of my phrases am I going to use to <laughs> to bring everybody over here? Let's see, right. what should I say? Uh, how about the grin and linen line? Hey, I'll pull that one. <laughs> it's like, what is, why would anyone say this to you know? Wouldn't you just say, hey, get over here? Hey, everybody, I found him. <laughs> something yeah. he's got to say something first. But it's what makes you know. Again, this is what I was hinting at about something that's of its time. That I don't think it necessarily it kind of dates this movie a little bit, maybe the Hudsonese that he's speaking, but it reminds me of like boyfriends. My sister, my sister's older than me, and you know he kind of reminds me of boyfriends my sister had in the late '80s. You know, <laughs> people thought these th- kind of things were actually clever and funny. Right. You know? Well, what stands out to me is that, uh, like you said, I like you, I saw Aliens before I saw Aliens, so I didn't have that frame of reference. I'd also watch Aliens before I saw Weird Science, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm so glad because otherwise, if I if I knew him as Chet, I would have a very hard time just appreciating Hudson as a standalone character without all the baggage of like Chet in space. <laughs> and I feel like that line in particular, "Stop your grinning and drop your linen," is very Chet. Yeah, and I think you just titled the, this episode um, Ch- Chet in Space is probably <laughs> most certainly going to be the name of this episode now, but you're right, right man. I'm, I'm the same way. I didn't see Weird Science until I was in college, 
and I'd already seen Aliens a bunch of times. So when I saw Weird Science, I was like, oh, this is Hudson. I see where some of this came from. Yeah. But absolutely. had it been the other way around, yeah, that would, I don't know. How did, I, I, nobody's really brought that up before. I wonder how people took Hudson who were very familiar with Weird Science. I don't know. That, that I might have to find someone who saw Weird Science a few times first and see if that ruined Hudson for them or not. But I could see how it would. Well, yeah, or even, you know, imagine people kind of discovering it now with the entire kind of remainder of, of uh, Bill Paxton's career being like, oh, hey, did you know the guy from Big Love was in an alien movie? Like, you know, that <laughs> weird right. You know, who knows oh, my God, people... the guy from Fishheads. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, the well, the big love thing, you know. Uh, if you watch that show, that's about as sober as a performance as you we ever got from Bill Paxton, right? I mean, he is a straight laced. I mean, obviously, he's playing a Mormon, you know, like he's a straight laced character as he could be. And yeah, if that was your point of reference for Bill Paxton, you're you're going to be really shocked by his earlier career. I think he's definitely, for the most part, a little closer to the Chet Hudson thing, uh, but. I mean, he's not to say the guy had a lot of range and uh, not only as an actor, but as a new wave uh, uh, music, you know, musician and singer. But yeah, yeah, so uh, the guy was great. And yeah, most people think of him as Chet or Hudson, right? I'm thinking that that's most people's point of reference. I I guess like like Twister didn't really have the the cultural niche that it do people not still talk about that. I don't know. He's in a bunch of other things that are obviously. Uh, I mean, he's in Titanic. He's been in some huge blockbuster movies. Uh, I know like black t-shirt horror loving guys who love him from near dark. I feel like he's one of those guys like, you know, like Tim Curry, that it says a lot about you based on what you might know Bill Paxton from. Right. But he's what what your area of interest is. He's like a in near dark. He's like a killer Hudson. Like he's still Hudson. He's still walking around strutting and, and he's very braggadocious and he's just also going to cut your throat open with a spur. You know, that's the difference. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. The, the Titanic, we talked about it a little bit, how, how sober of a performance that is. And he's in, it's the first time in a James Cameron movie where he wasn't hamming it up quite a bit, yeah. you know, but yeah, like he, yeah, like I said, he had a broad career and he, you know, frailty, his directorial, like, I guess the big directorial, you know, job he took. Um, he's very menacing in that movie, and uh, and he, it's a pretty solid film too. So, I don't know. Yeah, Bill Paxton's been all over the place. He's great. I love him. I, I'm no way ever going to disparage Bill Paxton. But these lines, it's like, yeah, it, it would all depend on your frame of reference with his career as to whether this character would work for you. I think uh, for me, this is my introductory character to him, so uh, it always is going to work. One, uh, I feel like this was also my introduction to the universe like i feel like when i was you know a, a early teenager preteen to teenager no I, I don't know it had to be somewhere in there um that this probably exactly when the movie hit cable and it was on and people were you know watching it on hbo or whatever i feel like i was at some kind of party um and you know some kind of barbecue or something and one of my friend's friends was quoting Hudson basically like maybe not the whole party, but I feel like more than once he was, he was just all into it. And I was like, Oh, this must be a cool thing that I have to check out. Like, I don't, (laughs) I don't, I don't know what, like this kid must, he seems pretty cool. And he's quoting this movie and I know that there's, you know, it's like a sci-fi movie. So I should, this seems like it's totally. Yeah. Yeah. I had the experience that, that, um, 
I, I, uh, I saw it in the theater. I would have been 11 years old and my parents took me to see this. And what I find so striking about it is not the violence or the language or anything. It's like, who takes an 11 year old kid to see a two and a half hour movie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's why like so many people said to me when my kids were younger, like, are you going to take them to see the Avengers? I'm like, no. They're like, oh, cause of the violence. No the movies too long. <laughs> Yeah, I've been there too. You know, the only the only really lengthy movies or movies at two and a half hour type area that I've taken my son to are the Star Wars, the two Star Wars that have come out in his lifetime. Yeah. And those because those are Star Wars, you know, again, we're talking about Star Wars again. Um, those stand out. Those are different. And those are different to him. Like Star Wars means amazing to him. So it doesn't matter how long it is. He's going to sit there and watch the whole movie. So otherwise, though, I did try to take him. It was a terrible idea. I tried to take him to see Civil War, and man, he checked out quick. <laughs> checked out quick. He was like, "What are we doing here? I love Captain America, but I'm not actually seeing him." And uh, I was yeah. like, "Yeah, this was a bad idea." And I and I took him out with probably two hours left in the movie, so it was it was a disaster from minute one. For a second, I thought you were you were uh, talking about Ken Burns' Civil War. I was like, "Yeah, I thought it would be a good <laughs> idea to take him to that." The 16 part PBS documentary. <laughs> That's that's at least two years off for him, I think. Well, so speaking of characters being of the time, um, this is only a minor thing, but it, it actually, I don't want to say startled me, but it, I, I certainly noticed it. But um, Hicks smoking just in that control room, I was like, whoa. Like, mm-hmm. it's interesting how, you know, I'm sure at the time, even, you know, I wouldn't even, considering that this is the first time that I've noticed it, means that we've come kind of, uh, a long way. We've come a long way. That's <laughs> as, yep. as far as kind of you know smoking in 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 movies and TV and kind of it being shorthand for you know frazzled or cool character. Um, and you know, of course, if, if this you know if this is just your standard uh, you know army movie, you know, then this is totally like of course they would the soldiers would be sitting around smoking and and you know doing whatever. But, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is the time to get into it, but I think this is where uh, that that cigar feels very Sergeant Rock. You know, yeah. it feels very World War Two. And I think one of the things about uh, when Pete told me um, that that he would like me to appear on this uh, podcast, I was I was really flattered. But he said, you know, one of the things we'll talk about is it's like a Vietnam space movie. And I think at this point there were still a lot of movies being made about the Vietnam War that didn't understand what the narrative was. So they borrowed from a lot of tropes of World War II dramas because mm-hmm. it was still something. And I love, I love that there are so many different types of movies that try to like um, mentally process what the country went through, even, even in something like movies like Rocky or The Bad News Bears. They're movies that are about like the loss and, and the hardship of like the American character dealing with the loss of the Vietnam War. And um I, I definitely see there there are elements of it in aliens as as far as like what that platoon is doing and what they're going through. But I think cinematically, um there there were still movies that were drawing from World War Two films rather than actually the Vietnam War. And um it it's kinda like I, I have no idea. Was James Cameron did did he serve in any capacity? I'm not I'm not a veteran, I'm not a soldier, so I'm not judging the guy, but he 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 didn't have a military background, did he? I don't I don't think so. Um, 
the only background I know about him is that he was a, a over the road truck driver before he was a oh, filmmaker. Okay. I know but that. um but yeah, the uh, he definitely was informed by Vietnam like pretty much anybody else in this era would have been. Oh, absolutely. But, and that and that you know the the like you said, you know Ripley's trauma and everything she's going through, it's like the the aftermath that comes with that and the it's it's um this came out the same year as Rambo, right? I think it's a year after Rambo 2. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Rambo: First Blood Part Two. You're right. Come out one year earlier, and it's it's fascinating to me that you know at the time Ronald Reagan would talk about a situation in Lebanon, and he would say, "Oh, I've got to send Rambo in." Yeah, that's what I'll do next time. And um, nobody would ever say, "Oh, I'm going to send Ripley in," not necessarily because you wouldn't send the female character in, but that Ripley is part of a science fiction fantasy universe, whereas Rambo is based in the real world where the Vietnam War took place. And the the narrative being created is is kind of like somebody making a baseball movie. They're not basing it on baseball games. They're basing it on other baseball movies. So I feel like the, the Vietnam War movie was still trying to like find its footing and base it on other war movies. So yes, it does have a lot of the iconography of like the 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 kind of tattered, gruffy, scruffiness of of some of the uniforms and some of the machine guns and the technology. Because James Cameron talks about how you know Vietnam was the big technology war that it was going into a, a country with guerrilla warfare. That all that tech and all that money still lost the war compared to the uh, Viet Cong who didn't who didn't have any of that. Yeah. So you do see a lot of the the technologies that they're using through their tracking stuff through their video. Um, that 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 is very much like going in against this. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, the natives that they're about to battle with. But I think that's that's also where the the Vietnam thing gets really problematic to use an overused word is that, okay, if this is a Vietnam movie, then you're comparing Vietnamese people to space monsters. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping that's there was no one-to-one with that comparison in their mind. But you're right, there's Vietnam all over this movie. Like there's, It's definitely it. in the mind. And, and you're getting it from both ends, because for the most part, the military is, is being portrayed as the American, what the American mindset might have been on entry to the Vietnam War. While Ripley would represent Vietnam on the other or America after Vietnam, right? So we're kind of getting both uh, a little bit out of order, but we're getting both ends of it, right? So yeah. she's like the veteran that's seen it all, maybe a veteran of Korea, you know, that is saying no, you, we shouldn't get back into something like that. Um, but as far as as what was going on in film at the time, we really only had two notable and and forgive me if i'm missing one i think actually rambo uh, the first first blood first blood i think is an interesting take on post-vietnam itself while rambo 2 completely kind of blows it up into a reagan-esque you know reagan era type of mindset but coming home hal ashby's coming home which is about you know the trauma of coming back from vietnam and then apocalypse now those were kind of the only movies about Vietnam that it, that had happened yet. We were right on the cusp of Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, and then all of the stuff that we've gotten since then. Yeah, Even it really, it really blows up as a text in '87 because you've got stuff like Hamburger Hill and Full Metal Jacket. In '78, mm-hmm. you had something like uh, The Boys in Company C, which I think is a really 
good example of a not so good movie because it is using a lot of the tropes of the World War II film that doesn't understand the uniqueness of why the Vietnam War was different from other ones, um, as well as indirect movies that are processing it, like Taxi Driver is very much about a Vietnam vet coming home. There's all sure. kinds of exploitation driving movies about the troubled Vietnam vet, or like even going back to like the Billy Jack movies. Um, I would, again, uh, I wrote an article for IFC about movies that are secretly about Vietnam, movies like Platoon, or not Platoon, I'm sorry, Predator, <laughs> obviously. Platoon, secretly about Vietnam. No, Platoon, textually, <laughs> textually, Platoon is about Vietnam. And, sure. then, and then on the other extreme, you have something like Predator that's secretly about Vietnam. And then stuff like Robert Altman's MASH is about the Korean War, but it's secretly or not so secretly about, you know, the, the conflict in Vietnam. Um, so it's, it's really fascinating to, to what extent people were allowed or people were being given money to actually tell certain kinds of stories. Sometimes you had to like hide it like a Trojan horse movie. And then other times it would, it would just be like right on the marquee in the forefront, like this movie, full metal jacket and platoon and, you know, whatever else is about the war. And I think the fantasy element that's involved in alien echoes the question that Rambo says at the beginning of uh, First Blood Part Two: do we get to win this time? So Ripley is kind of like the Vietnam soldier who gets to go back into the war, who gets to win this time. Right. And Cameron talks about that there were Vietnam vets who would, who would return to the States and they couldn't, they couldn't handle civilian life, so they would voluntarily go back into the jungle having, having spent time over there because that became you know normal for them, that stress level, that... It, it was harder for them to to return home, and I think that's that's one of the things I really enjoyed about watching the movie this time about uh, Ripley just having this trauma of not being able to like uh, come back into the world that so many things had changed. Um, it's it's really amazing. Sorry, there's a lot. <laughs> no, that's good. I was I was kind of waiting for. I haven't heard from Pete in a while, so I was kind of waiting for Pete to come in. Well, sorry, I was trying to make a uh, mentally. I'm trying to make a, a, a connection, a, a segue, because I, I. I'll I'll just go I'll just go one step further and connect it to later science fiction films, like in Roland Emmerich movies like Stargate or Independence Day. The idea is that America gets to see itself as the underdog because I feel like that's so important to the American character coming out of 1776 and the Boston Tea Party, Boston Tea Party and rebelling against the British Empire that mm -hmm. by 1985, 86, America is like the number one superpower in the world, but it romantically wants to have this, this character in movies that America is the underdog and it's the little guy and it's the scrappy fighter. And that's why alien and aliens can, or aliens in particular, is such a great fantasy because it's like, oh, we're not just fighting human beings. We're fighting these eight foot tall monsters that spit acid and have heads pop out of their open mouths. And I think Roland Emmerich does that with Independence Day that, you know, America, in order to be the underdog, has to fight these gigantic spaceships and superpower aliens. That there is something so appealing to playing either the victim or the underdog. And that's something that, uh, that was very appealing in politics after, after everything America had done to other countries and sort of become like a, uh, I don't know, like some kind of bully of the world. And it's, it's much more gratifying to tell a narrative story about the underdog. Right. Yeah. In the, in the Emmerich world, 
uh, we have to make sure that America is leading the way. Like we might be the underdog, but the people that are fi- the people that are fighting with us are fighting behind us. We're leading the way, you know, because obviously in Independence Day, it's a global uh, undertaking. Yet it's Bill Pullman that's the one that gives the rousing speech and everybody, you know, obviously it's an American made film. So, of course, there's a practical reason for it. But I think that there's something behind that, too, where the it's leader, not a, the leader of the resistance, the leader. Yeah. The leader of the resistance is the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so we're not uh, we're not completely forfeiting our superpower status. We're just right. there's a new element that forces us to have to climb further up to the top of the mountain, you know. Yeah. So, Yeah. And and that's another thing, just to because we're always going to bring it back to Star Wars, whether or not peace here. Um, <laughs> that that's the funny thing about the Force Awakens is like, oh, there's been a shift in power. Well, we need to become a rebel alliance again. Where it's like, what about the twenty years when you know <laughs> Leia was a general who was like, you know, she was the the dominant, she was like the the dominant party. We didn't we right. didn't get any of those movies from those years of what it was like when you weren't the scrappy underdog rebels. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah it would have been nice to see that shift, but yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe, but arguably, maybe that's not as interesting a uh, narrative. Well, you just have to tell it different. It's a different story. Yeah, and you have to. I mean, that's uh, again, we'll get away from Star Wars sooner or later. But that's also kind of why they fall into the trap of, of like this time it's a bigger Death Star. It's like look at how. <laughs> How menaced can we? Well, we already proved that. We, yeah, we, we can overcome this. You know, super weapon. Okay, but there's a bigger version of the super weapon. Okay, but we can we can overcome that. You know, and it's like creating these bigger and bigger monsters. Kind of going back, even you know, you were saying you know Rocky, the first one at least was a um, you know a, a kind of America after Vietnam movie. But then that becomes you know same thing where he has to like, well, he already he was the underdog. And you know, survived, and then he was the underdog and won, and then it's, you have to kind of keep creating. Well, this time he's he's you know, look, he's fighting this big tough guy. This time he's big fighting Russian. This, this big yeah. super Russian. You know, like you have to kind of keep elevating that and being like, now he's totally. the underdog because he's you know he should he should be fighting aliens, Rocky. And that were in that Russian killed America. Right. You know, like there's no two ways to take it. The guy that walked into the ring with the. Uh, with the Uncle Sam hat and the America shorts <laughs> yeah. is the guy who got murdered. You know, it's there's no, right, right, right. no way to take that any other way. So yeah, it's the the progress. The, what what Reagan did to our mindset and to our movies is very. There could be a whole thing, a whole book about you know Reagan's era cinema that would be pretty interesting, I think. But yeah. All right. Well, to, to bring it back, I want to bring it right back to Hudson again <laughs> real quick. We haven't even gotten away from Hudson yet, but I do want to point out this little beat we have with Hudson after um, Gorman orders Apone to get everybody saddled up and Apone tells everyone to saddle up. We hold on Hudson for a moment, right? He knows Before something. We, and it's, it's a f- interesting moment because it's one of the weird spots where it's more subtle than Alien. Where, the, where Aliens is more subtle than Alien, because we've talked about a little bit how Hudson is the Lambert of this movie, right? He's the, the you know, we talked about as uh, uh, Tyler Smith from Battleship Pretension Podcast when he was on for Alien talked about how one of the rules of horror uh, could be, you know, that, that, I don't know if it's one of the classic rules, but you should always listen to the most scared person, right? They're usually the one that knows 
uh, what you actually the decisions you should actually be making usually turns out that they actually were right the whole, the whole time, right? So in this case, Hudson doesn't necessarily play that role 100, percent but he's definitely the Lambert of this movie. We'll find that out more later. But right now, it's interesting to see that to, for them to hold on him and him sort of pop his gum in thought. It's almost like he's asking a question uh, mentally that we're not hearing, but he's going, what is going on here? I don't know if I like this. That's what I kind of read on his face. So I think it's a nice, subtle beat. It's a little foreshadowing. I don't think if you're watching this movie for the first time, you're going to get it. Mm-hmm. That That's what he's doing. But in hindsight, I think we're getting a moment where he's the one that's kind of asking the question first. Like, I'm not so sure we should be doing this, or maybe we should. this requires a little more study or something like that, you know. But I don't know. That's yeah. just what I read from that beat. No, and, totally. John, let me ask you, with, with that beat, do you think that's in the script, or do you think that's something that Bill Paxson kind of brought to the performance? I want to um, say, in the script or not, I want to say it was, you know, textually intentional because I, I also want to, if you compare, kind of contrast that with, um, uh, I just wrote it as, you know, Gorman is hubris, that like like the look on, on Hudson's face of like, wait, something's going on here versus the look on, you know, Gorman has this like, he sits kind of almost sits back in his chair for a minute to be like, oh, great. Yes. Like mission accomplished. We're almost there. Like he has this look of like, oh, perfect. We found them. Good to go. Like things are progressing as planned. Like at least that's what I read into his, his look there. So kind of the two, you know, the two faces of it, uh, you know, Gorman being kind of that unseasoned, you know, like he nervous, you know, hoping everything was going to go right kind of uh you know look at it versus hudson who who is more kind of experienced with this and knows like wait a minute this this doesn't read right to me yeah yeah just just to to zero in on the one minute and i apologize for for going so broadly talking about uh 20 years of cinema and war movies but uh it's a really good gorman minute where you get to really get a, a good sense of like they're really propping him up and setting him up in a really particular way i also love the way when they're when they're looking at the console that um Burke just kind of slides in there and you see his flannel shirt and vest. And <laughs> I, uh, watching it this time, I was like, I just, you know, I, I just immediately associate Paul Reiser with Mad About You. And he could have had a whole other career playing these kinds of characters. I love that later in the movie, and I'm sorry to get ahead of myself, uh, that, that uh, Ripley refers to him. They call him a rat. But she, she she uses sleaze as a verb. She's like, you're not going to sleaze out of this. <laughs> it's just like a really great performance. I, I just, um, you know, this in Beverly Hills Cop, he, he, had, <laughs> he had very small film roles, but he's great in those parts. Yeah, he had a nice trifecta with Diner, Beverly Hills Cop, and Aliens to I start totally his career. Forgot. Totally forgot yeah. about Diner. You're right, you're right. Yeah. And and just to get back to the script, there is no reference to um, to Hudson at all at the end of the scene. It's just Apone saying they're not paying this by the hour. Cut to the APC going across the planet's surface. So it's a it was an editing choice. Um, Ray Lovejoy did an excellent job with this movie, and it was a nice moment. And you know you get you're getting a little performance. Maybe that was what the editing choice was uh, motivated by. There's this moment where where Paxton is doing something, and we've already talked about the fact that his chewing gum and everything was all just an attention grab. That Paxton, it was a, a device he was using just to draw attention to himself in every shot. He's <laughs> just oh, chewing gum, so he's he, he's doing that, and so maybe they they you know got that second look at him, and he said, you know, there's something happening here. There's something Paxton's doing something here. 
let's hold on him for a second before we cut away. And it's got there's some richness behind it. There's actually something happening there that you can read in going on behind his eyes. There, you know, he's thinking about something, he's pondering something. And you got to wonder what it is. So you do wonder why such a verbose individual wouldn't uh, speak his mind here. He tends to do that for the most part, but why well, he wouldn't ask this question? But maybe he's um, he's starting to learn that that you can't get through to Gorman really. So maybe. Maybe uh, or maybe the thought's not fully fleshed out in his mind, but uh, to me, it's a nice subtle moment and, and works really well as a way to cut into this. Uh, we're about to enter into the action again. We're about to get into the real meat of the movie as far as the plot and the action is concerned. So it's a nice little button to that scene. Yeah, it's also a uh, great detail when they're looking at the screen. There's like this overhead shot of a circle. It's like the graphic that they're looking at where, where it shows, you know, what they call the town meeting. And I'd never noticed it before. It, it, it almost looks like a trivial pursuit board. You know, it almost looks like a game board. And I was just thinking about it in terms of like a chess game with a queen. Yeah. You know, that they are, they are entering the game. And that the movie has so many elements that at the time, I don't, I don't think it would have been a reference to talk about, oh, this feels like a video game. Because video games would have been stuff like, you know, Dig Dug and Gauntlet. But as far as like first person shooter games that would come in the next 25 years it really has this incredible video game feel with, you know, sub-level one and telling you where you need to go and first-person shooters and monsters popping out that it, um, I mean, obviously, it must have been like a huge influence on so many different video games. But uh, at the time, I don't think people would have would have called it out and said like, oh, this feels like a video game movie, except I feel like this is what so many video games are aspiring to achieve. Maybe just that one shot right like the 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 map shot looks more like the video games of the time that overhead with the little dots and yeah maybe that they were like oh it's like a video game i was going to say there was that aliens shooter arcade game i don't know if you guys ever played that did you ever yeah sure where where you're just kind of walking straight down a corridor and aliens just keep popping out at you (laughs) uh i actually adored that game that was that might have been my first real foray into fandom with this movie like i'd seen the movie once maybe but I, anytime I was at the mall and went to the arcade, that was the first game I went to for a long time. Probably just because I had a gun on it, you know. But right. yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, you know, this movie, that game, you know, the elements that were then mined from this movie—it's so much influence on video games for sure. Definitely. So now we get, we're going to cut to the exterior of the planet. So we're getting a nice planet surface shot. And this is really we got a little bit with the um, dropship landing uh, and the you know dispersal and entrance into the colony facility, but this is kind of the first good long shot of the planet's surface that we've had since Alien. And I wanted to point out, you know, not only do I love I love the APC, um, I love the t- just the tone of the planet and everything. It kind of matches with Alien, Aliens, uh, you know, version of it, the Ridley Scott version of it. But it is markedly uh, less hostile, right? <laughs> you see what I mean. You know what I mean when the away team and alien is out headed towards the derelict. The conditions are horrible, right? Yeah. But here we here's a nice clear day, and uh, I suppose one could say, "Oh well, it's just a better time of day." They talk about how there's weather coming in and alien, and so on. But you could also kind of guess that maybe this is the work of the atmospheric processors. Would you guys say that's a you think they were actually mindful of that? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know what? It it reminded me of visually the the blue and the desolateness is totally 
those scenes from Terminator 2 when the robots are crushing skulls as they walk. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just a desolate future Earth. Um, it totally reminds me of that. I had not even thought about the weather and what that means. I thought this was a typical day. Yeah, I never did either until putting notes together for this. Uh, and, and, you know, I obviously we had a lot of notes about the conditions of the planet back for when we were talking about Alien. So now I'm thinking about it. I'm saying, you know, this isn't a pretty clear shot. We're not getting that same, uh, sh- like, shitty video footage that we had. We're not getting the what seemed to be like wind blowing and just hazy, smoky atmosphere. And then it occurred to me they're actually headed to an atmospheric processor right now. And that is actually what the colony is there to do. So maybe they were, you know, not only is it make it a little easier on the, on the set designer, on the crew in general to not have to deal with all those conditions, having to make those conditions, but uh, it actually makes narrative sense. Yeah. Yeah, totally great. You know, it would easily seem cheesy if you were to kind of try to include that in a lot of other things, but it's, it's so like seamlessly, you know, if they, uh, you know, if you were trying to pull this off in a different setting and it's like, Oh, you know, they walked by a fog machine or something like that, you know, like, <laughs> or, uh, you know, it happens in, in, um, oh God, star Wars again, but in, you know, <laughs> in the empire strikes back where, you know, where like Luke swings his lightsaber and hits the tubes that are feeding the carbon freezing machines. So then there's this atmospheric kind of, you know, fog in part of it, you know, and, and less successfully maybe in, uh, you know, attack of the clones where he, you know, there's, there's like a lighting trick that's happening because there's something spinning around, you know, and it's, you can do it well and you can not. And this was, it was so subtle that, you know, I neither, you know, I, I didn't even think about it until right now. So good job. It was well, well integrated. <laughs> yeah. So we get the, um, we cut to the inside of the, um, of the APC right to Newt, right? And Newt is talking to Casey, the doll, and I don't really have anything to say about this now, but I do want to plant the seed for a future episode. Does this align with her thoughts on Casey in general? Don't answer that now okay. because it's, a, it's for a later minute. This is more for the listeners. I, I, I kind of, I never thought about it, but I thought this maybe contradicts something that comes later, but I just wanted to throw that out there. I think it's a nice moment in the moment uh, that we're getting like a, a little bit more character out of Newt. Yeah. And and then we get this sh- nice shot where she's reassuring Casey that everything's going to be okay. And then we pan over as Newt looks over to Ripley. And that fortifies the relationship that was that was built in the last scene between Ripley and Newt where they, you know, Newt broke broke her down and got her comfortable and um you know Newt just said, you know, that they're not going to be okay in that in that conversation, but you know, she's looking to Ripley to say, okay, maybe because she's here things might be okay. Uh, it's a nice moment. I love the little pan over to Ripley and, and it, you know, it's a nice next beat in their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. This is, uh, it, it's hard to find things that are, uh, well, every, obviously everything is criticizable, but, uh, you know, uh, once again, the, as we step through this, even at a, at a microscopic level, this, this movie is pretty well done. Yeah, that scene, uh, that that pan plays really well. I like that Casey's doll hair looks so similar to Newt's hair that you know they just uh, they, they they kind of are bonded, and then uh, it it really I think underlines or foreshadows the bond that she's going to have with Ripley. It's uh, it's just a really nice moment. 
And I think this is uh, what makes Aliens head and shoulders above so many other like science fiction or, or space monster movies of its time, or even that came before and after, that has just got a lot of really great human moments. And one of the things, I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves with Hudson, I love that he's got this bravado and is also a coward, you know? Mm-hmm. Just uh, there, There's so much going on with the different characters that just makes it a, a rich movie that's great to go back to. And with Hudson, it's you could read it as mindless bravado, right? You could watch the first half of the movie and say, "What a what a dickhead!" You know, like you're you're just being a a bro, being a frat boy asshole. But when you get the cowardice on the other end of the movie, you realize that it's got a psychological purpose. So the braggadocio that he exhibits all the time is a cover. And that, that gives him richness and humanity. And you're right. Uh, humanity is what's at the core of this movie that makes it stand out. That's what made it stand the test of time. That's what makes it a movie that I want to talk about, you know? So, and Cameron was right there with that. I, I feel like the same thing could be said of the Terminator. The Terminator has that core to it with uh, both Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor. I think that they're, they're both such human characters and relatable characters in certain ways her more relatable than him maybe in a lot of ways, but he's so well played and um, how he reacts to her, you know, not to, this isn't the Terminator minute, but w- Cameron was really good at that early in his career. I, I think he slipped away from it, unfortunately, but um, we've talked about that a lot uh, already. So don't have to go into that there, but this, in this movie, it's definitely present. Well, that's also Michael Bean. I, I had forgotten uh, j- just how strong it's really great that he has a gentleness to the characters he plays in Aliens and in Terminator you know that yeah. uh, he's he's the action hero but there's w- without making too big a deal out of it without you know trying to hang your hat on the fact that like he's an action hero but he's sensitive it's like it's all just there and I think that that's another thing that just makes the movie really appealing and seem ahead of its time and just to give Michael Bean a little bit more credit, even, you know, he had a trilogy of films with, with Cameron back to back to back and he goes into uh, the abyss and I, they probably even had this conversation about him doing something completely different. He said, okay, I played that character twice mm-hmm. and it worked this time. I want to do something that's the polar opposite. And I think he does a very good job with that. I'm not a huge abyss fan. I think it's messy, but I I love his character. I really loved his character Back when it came out, when that movie first came out, I thought he should have gotten nominated for an Oscar. You know, my 13 year old self thought he was just brilliant. But yeah. it is, it's a very effective kind of psycho villain. And uh, so, Michael Bean, give him a lot of credit. We give him a lot of credit on the show because I think he's, he did a great job. He was, he was excellent. Uh, his work with James Cameron, he did a good job in some other things too. All right. Do you guys have anything else for this minute? Well, you, well, you mentioned the humanity. On the DVD that I watched of Aliens, it has, I think it's a Starlog sit-down interview with Cameron when he was making the movie. Mm. Did you see that? No, I haven't seen that. Okay, it's on the, um, it's like the 20th anniversary legacy set of the four movies. Um, and, and one of the bonus features is a writer from Starlog sits down to talk to James Cameron and I think it's the writer who says it, not Cameron. He tries to put words in his mouth where he talks about there's a humanity to it in dreaming. That that there's the the theme of, you know, it opens and closes with, with dialogue and, and visuals of dreams. 
And he says, and that's what gives the film such humanity that only humans dream. And it's like, that's not true. Dogs dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What does this guy? Dog owner, any dog owner has seen their dog having a weird dream and moving its legs. <laughs> well, I guess that could explain why this guy worked for Starlog. And not uh, Cinefantastique or something. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to say like National Geographic or something. No. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was just making comparisons between magazines that had good writing about Alien and bad writing. About completely Alien. understood. Yeah. All right, Pete, you got anything else? Uh, no, that's, that's pretty much it. I had a couple of things that will pop up in tomorrow, but uh, that's it for this. All right. Well, uh, Kevin, I know we could find you over at lovekevin.com, uh, over at that website of yours, but can you tell people where else they can find you online? Yeah, Love Kevin is a great place to see some of the videos, find out about the Kevin Geeks Out shows that I do um, almost every month in New York City. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Kevin Geeks Out, and um, you'll, you'll get lots of plugs about different podcasts I'm appearing on, um, articles, videos, and live shows that I'm doing. So give me a follow at Kevin right. Geeks Out. And Pete, you want to remind everybody where they can find you? Uh, mainly, let's say Pete the Retailer on Twitter. Um, I'm also from StarWarsMinute.com and uh, currently ABCDevo.com. That's right. You can, uh, of course, find us at AlienMinute.com or uh, on Twitter at AlienMinutePod, Instagram at AlienMinutePodcast. Uh, you can also find me at uh, ABC Devo, as I am also a co-host of that show. You should come over and check the uh, check us out. Talking about music and uh, not movies this time. This is new, uncharted water for me. So come over and check us out. If you're a Devo fan, or even if you're not, come over and become a Devo fan. Uh, by listening to us at ABC Devo. All right, well, that's going to do it for minute number 53. We'll see you tomorrow for minute 54.